experiment and we love experiments it's going to be a conversation and the, today I'm really really delighted Dr. Jill Mellon thank you so much for coming on to this conversation that we're going to have about a whole bunch of different topics all related of course to animals enrichment are we talking about wellness and you know all kinds of neurological systems and you know really we'll just see where this goes but I'm really delighted welcome it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yes, me too. So we've met a few times in person, luckily, and uh, hopefully soon again. But uh, we are recording this on the 29th of October 2021. And a lot of us have really been home for quite a while, not meeting with our friends and family and loved ones. Um, it's uh, still COVID, but it's really great that we can connect online. And, and of course, a lot of People watching this or listening to this will know of your work, whether it's publications or book chapters and books and editing. But perhaps you could start with, a, with an introduction to yourself and how you got into the zoo world. Sure. You know, one of the things that I think is always fun to talk about with zoo and aquarium colleagues or really anyone is, you know, we do an unusual thing for, for a living. I think we're always highly entertaining to sit next to at dinner parties. Uh, because we have such uh, an unusual background. And I always ask zoo and aquarium people, how did you get interested in animals? Because I, I, um, my parents weren't particularly interested in animals. You know, I had a dog growing up um, and my brother was a school teacher. And so I'm the only one that went and started working in zoos and aquariums. And so how, how did that happen? How did, um, what, what sparked it in me? And I think it was my, my neighbor. So my neighbor, Belma and her, her daughter, Karen, lived next door to me for my, my formative years. And when I was quite young, um, Karen, the, the daughter, had a horse in the backyard. And, uh, you know, all my kindergarten friends thought it was my horse, and I did nothing to sway their idea that that was not my horse. And so there was Flicka in, in my backyard. And so Karen, who was, I don't know, maybe 10 years older than me, you know, let me tag along. So I was a little kid that helped her you know, clean the stalls and, and help her raise dogs. And so that's how I got interested in animals. But um, when I was um, finishing up my bachelor's degree in biology, and, and probably many of you come, have had this experience, what do you do with the bachelor's degree in biology? Well, you get a master's degree in biology. So I remember going home to tell my mom and dad that I was, that I had, was just so excited about learning about animal behavior and that I, my professor was, well, I was going to get a master's degree in animal behavior. And again, they always very pragmatically in central Illinois said, can you get a job doing that? <laughs> sure. Um, and so between working on my bachelor's or finishing on my bachelor's degree and starting my master's degree, they said, you got to get a job. And I went, okay. So I uh, went back to Illinois State University and there was a posting for children's zoo supervisor in Miller Park Zoo in Bloomington, Illinois. And um, to this day, I think that Miller Park Zoo is probably one of the smallest zoos in the United States that is AZA accredited. And so that was my first zoo job. And uh, children's zoo supervisor sounds quite, you know, um, impressive. And it was just me taking care of some farm animals that they borrowed for the summer um, and sort of protecting them <laughs> from children. Um, and, but I also spent some time in the main zoo. And, all I could think of is, I don't know what this is, but I want to do this for the rest of my life. And so I was able to do that and finished up my master's degree and um, ended up getting a job at the Oregon Zoo um, working on environmental enrichment with Hal Markowitz. Um, so um, many of you may have remembered um, what was called behavioral engineering. Hal Markowitz started this concept of giving animals some control over their own environment. And so I just sort of stumbled in on that. I was really hired to um, supervise and train students, undergraduate students that were collecting behavioral data on health projects. Um, and so that was really my foray into 
um, more research related in the zoo world. But, uh, you know, and again, you know, my whole career, my parents, you know, are you sure you can get a job doing this? And I think they were quite pleased that, you know, I, I could pay the bills most of the time. But anyway, that's the beginning of how I, how, how did you, why are you interested in animals? What's in your background that got you interested in animals? Yeah, so the curious thing actually is that I'm allergic to almost all animals. And so, you know, but I always loved animals. I was always interested in, you know, going outdoors, watching animals, you know, learning about animals. My parents always got me a bunch of books and, you know, and I had a guinea pig when I was really little, but I was very allergic. Uh, and that's how we found out also. And uh, going to visit the ponies and that made me really ill. So and that also then shaped, I knew I wanted to work with animals and I was really bored in school. So, you know, sometimes like people ask me about, you know, can you talk to, you know, my, my daughter or my son about how important it is to study and that they stay in school. And I'm like, I'm not really, you know, the best person to do that because I dropped out of school to start <laughs> working with animals and then going back to university when I was 29. But yeah, I just knew I wanted to do, um, you know, work with animals and care for them. And I, I also knew I wanted to study, but I wasn't sure yet what. So, but because of my allergies, I ended up, you know, working with fishes and volunteering at Artist Zoo um, as my first job. And, uh, you know, working with the turtles and scrubbing the manatees for enriching, you know, the really like that. And, uh, and I started working with marine mammals, but I'm also allergic to walruses and seals and sea lions when they are dry. So I bet they, wow. all, they all kind of went like, mm, that's the woman <laughs> that needs us to be in the water or wet. Uh, because if I would, you know, hang out with them and when they were dry, I would be allergic to them. So, um, and that's still entertaining when I go around um, for people or when we, they ask me a fun fact. Um, it's, it's definitely that one. But uh, yeah, animals have always... You know, and, and also very much this um, connection about animals in the wild. Like I love watching and learning about animals um, and in the wild as well. So, um, yeah, but I didn't. And, and working with animals and um, thinking about their well-being and how can we, you know, make sure or try and promote as much as possible good well-being made me study psychology when I was 29. Uh, part you know, for positive well-being, but also solving, you know, undesirable behaviors with them. So I have a slightly, perhaps unconventional way uh, of uh, backgrounds. But uh, yeah, that's how my connection with animals really started, bird watching and yeah, all that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, as a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, well, I want to find a job where I can play with puppies all day long. You know, I think I've exceeded my own expectations. So it worked out pretty well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, right, where we are in in these jobs that um, also require that passion, that connection that we want. But it also requires lots of skill building and lots of training and lots of practice work. Uh, That sort of combination of craftsmanship as well as um, and, and I don't know about you, but I like my job more and more as I learn more and more and understand more and more. So it's like almost passion follows craftsmanship now, but it was the passion that got me into it. Yeah, I, I think that what um, encouraged me to go back for my PhD was that I, I really loved the research, the science part of it, but realized that I would need a PhD to to really move sort of up in the, in the, in the zoo and aquarium world. Um, but I, I, I think that just my love of animals was always there. But then I realized I was a nerd and I loved to learn. And so, um, you know, most people talk about how stressful graduate school is and certainly it was, but I loved learning all that stuff. It was just so exciting. And, and it was, uh, it just, the, the atmosphere in graduate school of, you know, having some half-baked idea and then thinking, you know, I wonder if this is a good idea, you know, because you, you get all nerdy and, um, you know, think deeply and you think, oh, is that, you know, does it make any sense? And then you walk down the hall and you bounce that idea off a half a dozen people who, you know, are smarter than you and, and have more 
um, background than you and, and you know, you either find out that that was really a dumb idea or it was a pretty good idea. Um, and that, that was so fun to have that skill set. You know, I had sort of this practical experience and then the book learning on top of that was just really, really fun. Yeah, I sometimes get people like I, I started my PhD a few years ago also because of this same sort of love of science and, you know, be, be, being better trained to approach certain things and, and being this kind of forever student myself. I loved, even when I dropped out of school and high school, I still, I was always reading, I was always learning. It was not, that was not the problem. It was more the format that the education at the time was in that didn't really captivate me. But, uh, but sometimes people say, aren't you done like learning, you know, you're always doing stuff and, and it's that sort of thing, you know, always being curious and, and it doesn't feel like, obviously it can be very stressful and it's a lot of work, but it's really enjoyable just for the sake of doing it because you're learning new stuff and you're speaking to people and um, yeah, no, I, I, that resonates with me. I hear you. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, so uh, you and I, well, you have, Perhaps you could actually, no, let's go back a little bit. I was really intrigued because, you know, you've had an amazing experience working with, with Hal Markowitz. And, you know, I have read his work and admire him, but I've never met him and, or never heard him speak. But uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit more about, you know, who he was and, you know, his ideas and, and the research and, and clearly a very long history of research in zoos. Sure, uh, you know, he, he was certainly bigger than life. He, he was um, uh, uh, extroverted, exuberant, um, brilliant, um, friendly, um, outgoing person. And uh, he, just his, his energy and his charisma was contagious. And, and um, just, the, you know, the team that, that I, I, you know, just ended up working on was was just amazing, and you know when you're you you know you're a what I was 23 years old when I started at the Oregon Zoo working for Hal, and you you don't know what you don't know, and so I didn't know that this was groundbreaking, and I didn't know that this was really certainly how would you would you know certainly Hal my I, I think Hal probably did know you know I want to change how how we um, manage animals in zoos, um, but there were. You know, by the time I got there, there at the Oregon Zoo, there were easily a half a dozen projects um, that were ongoing, and um, some of them were meant to encourage sort of natural behavior that you would expect uh, an animal to do, and some truly were. You know, what these animals are in pretty small, pretty barren enclosures, and we're just going to see if we can we can get their their brains going. And so, you know, uh, some of them were things like. Um, river otters, it was just reinforcing them for sliding down a slide. Um, and again, I was the person chucking the fish into the pool once they had slid down the slide. And I was also the person with the clipboard, you know, scoring whether the male was doing this more, or the female was doing this more. Um, but, you know, it, it, in terms of the background, it was using opera and conditioning and all the shaping. And, and I, you know, I had, I, again, I had taken all those courses in school and I had, you know, train some rats in a skitter box. Um, but to see those concepts from my book learning being applied to zoo animals was pretty amazing. You know, there was another one to encourage activity in polar bears. And so polar bears were encouraged to vocalize and it had to be a, a certain, um, oh, I don't know, uh, a certain kind of vocalization uh, that was a, considered a sort of a friendly vocalization as opposed to aggressive vocalization. So the polar bear would vocalize um, and then there was this really death-defying catapult that would fling fish in there. And I'm, I'm surprised that I still have all my digits because that thing was really, really scary. But my job was to, to load up this catapult with um, some, some fish and some uh, biscuits for the, for the uh, polar bears. But again, they were encouraged and reinforced for jumping into a pool. So they were obviously much more active. Um, there was um, some servos, some servos were trained you know, servals are a medium-sized cat from Africa, and uh, one of their hunting techniques is to flush a ground bird and then leap into the air and pull it down. So they're they're known to be able to leap, you know, uh, a couple meters into the air. 
Um, and so they were reinforced in at the Oregon Zoo for jumping up and just hitting a rod. And so again, my job was to, to fling reinforcements in for doing that. Um, I would say that my all-time favorite animal at the Oregon ever ever and and certainly my all-time favorite animal at the Oregon Zoo was a male mandrel named Blue, um, and he um, he was housed with two females, and again in the olden days in a fairly small, fairly sterile enclosure, and he was a very aggressive male, which I think for mandrels might be redundant to just say that, um, but Hal put in the enclosure. Um, a box about this big, and it had one, two, three, four, three squares, and then at the top, a circle. And uh, so Blue could play, would test his reaction time. How weird and how artificial is that? He would test his reaction time against either a computer with a set reaction time, or there was the same panel out in the uh, visitor viewing area. So you could put a dime in. So this is how old long ago this is that a dime was was the 10 cents was a uh, um, not very much um, to test your reaction time against this monkey. Um, and so I just I can still visualize blue sitting there at this device and you know, he would just watch the people going by and he'd look over his shoulder and you know like come on put your dime in again being very anthropomorphic. Um, and um, then you the computer would, you know, light up the same things on Blue's um, device as your device, and you would test your reaction time. Um, the reaction time of humans is faster than than mandrels, um, but most of the people didn't read the instructions, and so I think Blue had a preference for, you know, playing against zoo visitors because they were easy to be. He earned all fifty of his pieces of monkey chow on a big conveyor belt in the back. Um, and my job was to cut up 50 pieces of monkey chow every day into quarters. Um, and he earned all of his monkey chow. That If he didn't, he got all of his monkey chow at the end of the day. But um, he almost always did earn all of his monkey chow. Um, but um, if um, a zoo visitor was pretty good at it, you know, mandrels head bob when they threaten. And Lou would turn around and head bob if, um, often in association with being beaten. Um, but again, if there were no zoo visitors, then the computer would, would play. Um, and, and when I first started working there, I thought, you know, put a coin in and turn the monkey on. This is, I'm, I'm not liking this at all. Um, but I spent a lot of time watching that family of mandrels. And Blue really, really did seem to enjoy that. I mean, it gave him something to do. Um, something that was pretty interesting was that one of his females, his females, um, her name was Alice, I still remember this, Lulu and Alice were the females with him, um, she would present, presumably submissively, to the machine, which was um, interesting. So there was a, a lot of dynamics. And again, uh, some of the kids, his offspring, would sometimes go over and, and look at the device, but mostly he would threaten them away from it. Um, so anyway, that was that was my favorite to work on. There was also a device um, to encourage gibbons to brachiate, and so there would be a big globe on this side when that would light up. Um, the gibbons were trying to pull a lever, and then at a certain amount of time to brachiate across the pretty big enclosure and pull another lever, and then they got a piece of chow. Um, and the the one that um, there were a couple of them that that didn't work all that well. Um, Hal wanted to know if orangutans uh, had the cognitive abilities to learn how to play tic-tac-toe. And again, it was like, you know, here's eye roll. It's like, is this really what we should be doing? But at that point, the orangs had a, you know, not an ideal enclosure. And so this was certainly engaging this uh, orangutan named Harry. Um, and um, he never did quite figure things out. He understood that if he did three buttons down this way, he sometimes got a food reward, but he never did quite figure out tic-tac-toe. So anyway, those are most of the ones that I can remember. Um, and it was very, very controversial at the time. So it was as official, put the coin in, turn the monkey on. Um, and uh, Mike Hutchins, who also is certainly a friend and colleague of mine, and uh, it's so interesting that, you know, there's these concepts were at loggerheads and yet um, these are people that I know and admire, admire and respect very much. But 
Al Markowitz was on one side and, and uh, Mike Hutchins was on the other side and they had these academic battles about whether you know, this is too artificial and giving the animals choice and control. Um, and uh, there was a, um, another researcher named Deborah Forthman who wrote an article, um, I can't remember, I think in the 80s where she basically said, you know, what in the world are you both arguing about? You're both right. For God's sake, you know, you're giving the animals some choice and control. And there's a lot of artificiality in zoos and we need to just, anyway, um, it's, it, you know, it's sort of like, we'll, we'll move beyond that. But from a political perspective, at some point, the then director at the Oregon Zoo fired Hal and said, you know what, pull all those, those machines out and uh, we're, we're not going to do that. So it was, uh, it was an interesting time. Yeah, and I think, you know, it is very interesting because I think to a certain extent, we are still also with these debates. There are still, you know, You're like right. you talk about um, artificial and of course, uh, barren environment and really coming up with in what ways can we enrich the animals' lives, right? And we're going to talk a lot more about environment and enrichment and what that, where it came from and what how we think about that perhaps today. But yeah, I think, you know, both we both go into zoos still today and there's different philosophies on what do we feel is acceptable in how things look and what things are made of and whether they can be you know made from plastic or fire hose or they have to be old from wood and or if it's fire hose then it needs to be brown or green or right yes it's kind it's of all you know the zoo directors are always the bad people the the bad guys in, in terms of my zoo director won't let me whatever um, right. And so that's an interesting conversation. Yeah. And sometimes also the, the care staff, you know, some care staff like it when we are uh, only using natural or, or things that are. So the other point that, uh, that I'd like that you brought up is like, it might not necessarily be in the natural behavioral repertoire or things that animals do in the wild, but they clearly seem to enjoy it, right? Really, really. And so when we talk about animal well-being or wellness or welfare, it's like these different words that we'll talk about a little bit, but um, it's, that is the other thing, right? In what ways are we going to approach this? Is, is, you know, animal welfare going to also very much be about what they enjoy, even if it's completely unnatural? And, and that's, again, something that our community is not necessarily united around. And this is why we see different practices, right? Yeah, so it's, so it's interesting to hear, you know, that historical perspective and then also the realization that in many of these things we still, and I, I wonder also if we are ever going to, you know, make a decision on that or come to an agreement on it, because it's really very, very different in its approaches. It's, it's almost like you have to clarify your stance on these sorts of things. Um, otherwise, it's like talking different ethical stances and you can never really understand or get close to each other because they are just fundamentally different in whether or not we think it's okay to use artificial, you know, materials or activities to get animals to do things that they would do in the wild. Um, right? Sorry. Yeah. I, I, I facilitated a really fun discussion one time at a zoo uh, where the the frontline staff, the animal care staff said, oh my God, you know, the director and the assistant director are driving us crazy. They'll go by and, and go, oh, that's so cool. Look at how much enrichment you've provided. Great job. And then the next day they'll go by and go, oh, I don't like that. That's not naturalistic. Take it out. And they're, they're going crazy in terms of, you know, we went through the approval process. And so we had a really fun meeting with the, obviously the director and the assistant director there, as well as the animal care staff. And I had a whole series of pictures of different enrichment. And um, because the director and the assistant director fully admitted, you know what, we don't know what we don't like about that. We just know we don't like it. Um, and so with a whole bunch of uh, pictures, it was like, oh, okay, here's the stuff that, you know, triggers, you know, that that's unacceptable. And, and the keepers got to go on that journey going, oh, okay. I mean, so it's really instructive. And the director and the, the assistant director went, you know, we're, we're really not very consistent. And so they moved toward being more consistent and it, and it just helped both sides. It was a really fun exercise. Yeah, it is, it is. And it's really important too, right? Because sometimes uh, we have this and we also have 
we can do some things with certain species, but the same things cannot be done with other species. So it's okay for That's the grapes and the, and the lions or the elephants because they need it. But, you know, we can't use it for the bearded dragons because, you know, that, that would be unacceptable. So this kind of differences in between taxa also on who needs what and whether it's acceptable. So great yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's some of the things that I've heard or encountered. Um, yeah, but and I think you know to have these conversations and just and also I like this idea of photos or and having the conversation of what is it there that triggers you know and could maybe that object in another color or from another material then uh, or even just becoming aware of maybe your inconsistency or that that trigger is really not that important can you know often. You talk about, um, you know, not opti such optimal environment for animals, or we want to have them think or be active, right? And um, environments of animals that live in our care are, by definition, already to some extent deprived. This controlled preparation concept from Gordon Burgard I find very helpful here. But it's like we. So by eliminating the things that we may feel not so great about or we don't like, then we're already eliminating even more options, right? In what we could be doing uh, for animals. And, um, or, or some things are only acceptable in the back of house or outside hours. And um, yeah, so I think it's great to have these sorts of conversations in our community or within an organization, yeah. And also, I think it's really important to be able to laugh about it. It's like, oh, my God, you know, the director went, you know, I'm, I'm really being inconsistent here and and really asking himself, well, what is it that I, I don't don't like about this? And, you know, what are my concerns and to be able to share that? And uh, and so it was I, I think that the laughter part was a really critical part of that, uh, because there, there is some just because I said so, you know, that stops with the zoo director. And so every so often he or she gets to say, you know what, just because I said so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, we all, I think, at least I, I can speak for myself also, we've all had these moments where something kind of rubbed me the wrong way or it was, you know, something. And then to be able to step away from yourself and go, okay, so that had more to do with my ego or it had more to do about something somebody did or said, you know, so it's not really related, but uh, yeah, to bring laughter and, and humor to this um, and, and, you know, kind of sanding off the, that seriousness. Um, and at the same time, of course, really deeply thinking about if we make those decisions, then what does that mean for the animals, right? Uh, just like if you decide no, no training, you know, no formal training often results in people uh, or organizations not deeply thinking about what are animals learning because whether we like it or not, they we're are learning, dark, yeah. and or we might have behaviors that we rather not see because of learning taking place. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, it's it's good to, and and laughing about stuff is really good. That helps. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. We have a whole bunch of different different topics, and I think perhaps we could, um, you know, you you send me this topic of wellness and welfare and well-being and so on. So perhaps you could let us know your thoughts around it and we can talk a little bit more about these, these words or concepts. No, that, no, that's a great question. And, you know, sort of the bottom line in, in terms of formal and even informal discussions of, you know, what are we going to call this in terms of we're going to call this animal welfare? Oh, welfare sounds like you know, the animals are on the dole and they, you know, they get taxpayer dollars or something. Um, and, and wellness um, sounds like they're sick and we need to make them better. And, and, um, and well-being, you know, well, I like well. And um, what some research has found is that it, it's, it, it's somewhat, in the United States, it's somewhat regional. And so the word well-being resonates on the coast, but it doesn't resonate in, in sort of an agricultural interior area. And, um, I have to say for me personally, I could care less. I don't care. I mean, it's this concept and I don't care what you call it. Um, and so I'm probably not the best one to ask is like, you know, you all figure this out and then let me know and this is what I'll call it. Uh, but I, I realized that you can't just ignore it because it, if, 
if I'm talking, you know, I'm adamantly talking about welfare and thinking I'm giving this brilliant, you know, overview of welfare. And, you know, Mrs. Smith over there is thinking, are these animals on the dole? You know, and, and because it's a, it's a word that resonates um, in a negative way to her, then all my brilliance, you know, over here is, is, is not gonna um, reach the person that I wanna reach in, in the way that, that I like to, to reach them. Um, so I don't, I, I don't, I personally don't care what anybody comes up with, but I do really respect that words matter. So we do need to do some, some due diligence in the area, in that area. And also just within your own zoo aquarium, um, make sure that your staff, your volunteers, your visitors know what you're talking about. Because if I'm going on and on about welfare and you're thinking, what the heck is welfare? Because I've chosen the wrong word. You're not getting your message across. What do you think? Do you have a favorite? No, I don't actually. No, I actually, I've, I've uh, for the last few years, I also noticed when I write, I often write uh, welfare and well-being. I kind of, I don't tend to use wellness. Um, but again, you know, like you mentioned about going and looking at yourself, for me, wellness very much has, you know, so many different, it could be spa, it could be all kinds of different things. But um, so I tend to mainly use welfare and well-being, but I use them interchangeably. And um, yeah, but it is true, words matter. I, I remember when I started Animal Concepts in 2004 and people were requesting a lot on animal training, I a lot of times didn't use the word training because for a lot of people, also that word kind of, you know, they had all kinds of ideas of tigers through burning hoops and, you know, and oh, also, yeah, even today, you know, many facilities still have this thing about mm, is training, you know, the thing we want to do. So yeah, I would use, you know, when you're interacting with the animal, when you are caring, and I wouldn't use the word training. Um, so yeah, no, I don't really have a favorite and I use them interchangeably. And, um, but, I, and I, I, but I do think it's, um, we have to figure it out and we have to be at least clear about what do we mean and are we not just changing a term so it seems like we're doing better or making things better, but we are not necessarily doing anything about that, right? So this is why when I started working with lab animals and reading more of the lab literature, I was really intrigued to find this concept of environmental refinement because in the lab world, we talk you know, a lot about the three R's and one of them is refining, right? And, and what they were talking about in those papers was really about the environments are not yet really good. So, and we need to refine, we need to make them better. And then the enrichment is kind of that extra sort of thing or the cherry on the cake. People have kind of used that differently, right? So we need to, change and refine and make those environments better for those animals and um, and to kind of talk about much of the care and the ways that we are showing up for animals what we talk about as enrichment really you know is good care right and that was one of the talking points that you also sent um and so that that is yeah go for it no your, your comments reminded me you know i i started um I was on the opening team for Disney's Animal Kingdom. And so, you know, when I started there, there were five of us or five or six of us or something. And then now there's hundreds of people that work at Disney's Animal Kingdom in terms of the, the animal care section. Uh, but what we realized as the team went from, you know, five people to 105 to 205 and, and so on, is that we represented a lot of different zoos and aquariums. And then if I started talking about training or enrichment or welfare, whatever, there's a hundred people that have come from a hundred different institutions with a hundred different ideas about what training is or what enrichment is or what welfare is. And we, after some stumbles, we learned backwards. Anytime we had a discussion, okay, I'm going to talk about welfare. Here's what I mean by welfare. We're going to talk about training. Here's what I mean by training. Uh, and again, because we were a new organization, it was really important to document that, you know, so the resident nerd is like, well, let you know, let's document all that. But it was a really important thing. And for any meeting, it was, 
you know, taking a step backwards and saying, today we're going to talk about X, whatever it is, and this is what we mean by it. And I, I think that that's a lesson learned no matter, you know, what institution you work, or organization that you work for is to, for, because these are so emotion laden and we have such passion and we care so deeply about this. And yet if I'm arguing, you know, this, and you're arguing with me about this and we're really doing this and we don't know what the heck we're talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And also that we are, um, so maybe this sounds kind of weird, but the, for a few years, I've been a member of this this um, platform, which is masterclass, and they have like masterclasses by all these different experts, you know, from poets to um, you know cooks and so on. And and they released a new one just recently, and um, by Metallica, you know, this 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 band, and I love their music, and uh, and I always love to kind of listen to other people in other domains and and see, okay, so what are some of the things here that are that are interesting also for where I work, right? And one of the few things that, uh, that just jumped at me today when I was listening to one of them, they had this, this, you know, talking about how do you work together when you bring together all these different people that have different ideas or different perspectives and then all want to obviously say their say and, you know, and come to some sort of common, um, and then, you know, they talked about ultimately it was about what is best for the project, right? So this for us to talk about enrichment and have a clear description of what do we mean and hearing all the various ideas around it, and then to be able as a collective to say now, okay, so what is now in the best interests of the animals, right? And uh, so, yeah, so th those are some of my takeaways from listening to Metallica today. And I mean, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> yeah, because I think, you know, people everywhere are trying to solve very similar problems like you and I, right? We're, we're coming to a common ground and trying to find out uh, what we're talking about. And, um, and I think also environmental enrichment, I mean, you have uh, together, um, you know, worked on this book on second nature and enrichment. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about enrichment and, and your ideas around enrichment today. Sure. So uh, <laughs> um, when I was working at the Oregon Zoo, uh, remember I talked about the zoo director who, who was a, obviously a very nice man, but did not agree with Hal Markowitz at all and ended up firing Hal Markowitz. Um, and so he, that zoo director moved on to other zoos and aquariums. Um, and a couple of zoo directors later, um, um, the zoo director at Oregon Zoo said, you know, we have this history of en enrichment and I want to get back to it, Jill. Um, who can, you know, how can we do that? And she said, who's, who's the leader in the field? Obviously she looked right past me. <laughs> um, and I said, well, there's this guy in England called David Shepherdson, and he's, I mean, he's the guru of, of enrichment now. And she said, let's hire him. And, and I thought, sure, let's do that. And um, I was, was I still, I was working on my dissertation and so I had collected some of my dissertation data at a zoo in England that had this wonderful collection of small cats. And while I was there, I went to the London Zoo, which is where David was working at the time. And we had tea, of course we had tea. Um, and we, we chatted quite a bit and uh, eventually I was able to hire him. And so we, he moved over and, and started at the Oregon Zoo. And so we had, you know, wonderful nerdy, nerdy, nerdy con uh, discussions, conversations um, about enrichment. And one of the things that David said is, you know, en en enrichment is this thing we do if, the, if we have enough time. If the keepers are done with everything else, so we have time, we'll, we'll do enrichment. And he said, I want to I, I scientific construct. I, I really want to look at enrichment from um, a scientific perspective. And um, well, that sounded pretty cool. And so the director was very supportive of us holding a conference. And so, and I think about it now, and, and I, I drive past this um, Shiloh Inn place um, by the zoo, which is, um, you know, not the nicest um, uh, little sort of um, conference hotel um, near the zoo. 
Um, but we, you know, we, we uh, organized this and we invited people from all over the country and all over the world to give talks about enrichment from a scientific perspective. Um, what's the scientific framework around enrichment? And, um, and so we hosted it. And um, um, Dave, um, Mike Hutchins, again, Mike Hutchins um, uh, has always been supportive of me in my career. And, and he said, you know, I've been editing a couple of different um, books related to welfare and uh, zoo animals. Let's see if we can get a book contract. And so we did get a book contract and um, we were able to produce Second Nature, which was an outcome of that, that first conference in environmental enrichment. Um, and David is, I mean, David is just retired now and is, is moved to Washington, is now uh, fixing up his sailboat. Um, but um, David has always been very involved in the Conference on Environmental Enrichment. And I, I don't, is it, are we up to something like 20 now? Um, but it's every other year and sometimes it's in the United States and sometimes it's elsewhere. Um, and um, he's still very actively involved in that. So um, that has had quite a lifespan and, and, and that's, um, that's really David's passion about this topic and his interest in that topic. And uh, uh, that, was a, that was very, very fun to be involved in. Yeah. But while I was in the middle of it, it was mostly stressful and hard work. In, in retrospect, it was like, holy cow, we wrote, we wrote a book. Yeah, no, that is very cool to write. You know, and at, at one point, somebody told me that it was um, two millionth on Amazon's bestseller list. <laughs> okay, excellent. Quite the achievement is that I was number two million. Yeah, no, I think, and and you know, we briefly talked a little bit about enrichment, but when you think about enrichment today, like as a concept or as a practice and so on, what are some of your thoughts like now or where we should be going with this? Well, you, you know, you and I had discussions about this. Um, you know, in, enrichment um, went from being something that if you had time to do, it, you, you, you know, it got, you'd give a boomer ball to an animal or something like that, to something that is really core to how we care for animals in zoos and aquariums. Um, and, and that's something that has been very exciting to, to follow and, and to, be, to be a part of. You know, and, and I think um, one of the, you know, sort of markers on that is um, AZA accreditation. So AZA accreditation, you know, I've been involved in accreditation for quite some time and probably about maybe 15 years ago, maybe longer than that, Don Moore, my, my friend and colleague Don Moore said, was on accreditation and he said, you know, we need some, something in the standards that say, you know, you, you and it's interesting with accreditation is that some of the things, the standards in there is you should have something. And, and so enrichment was one of those, oh, you should have an enrichment program. And then it evolved. And again, Don Moore was instrumental in this. And now you look at that standard and it's like, you must have an enrichment program and you must have a training program. And um, that was a, a wonderful, you know, if you have time, random acts of enrichment to you must have an enrichment program. And that's very, very exciting. You know, and, and you and I have talked about the spider model. So the spider model is, is simply a, a framework so that you have not random acts of enrichment, but that you have, and I still do this, setting goals, planning, implementing, uh, documenting, evaluating, and readjusting. Um, and, and so you, you have a, a process involved in, um, developing enrichment that encourages natural behavior. So it's behavior-based. Um, and you have a system in place for making sure that that happens. And then asking the question, did it work? Um, and, and I can tell you a story about Spider, how Spider came to be. You, you want that story? Yes, wonderful. Let's, let's hear that. <laughs> so um, when I was at Disney, I, I worked with uh, somebody named Marty McPhee, Marty Sevenick McPhee, um, who is a a brilliant person who thinks deeply about animals and um, just comes up with the most amazing ideas. It was always a um, it was always a journey to to you know think through something with Marty because she was so smart and so innovative. She still is smart and she still is innovative. Um, but as we started developing these concepts, 
uh, around enrichment um, at Disney, but then we, we thought it was a good idea and sort of shared it more broadly. Um, but, you know, Marty, you know, I guess I helped, but Marty came up with this idea of, of those six elements, uh, programmatic elements. And originally we had talked about, instead of uh, setting goals, we talked about goal setting. So it was goal setting and then those other five things. And whenever I'd come up with those, I'd always have my fingers out and I'd always like forget one. Um, and we, at some point in the middle of this, we hired Joseph Barber. Joseph Barber got his um, PhD from Oxford and he studied welfare in chickens. And he brought a, a perspective, a European um, discipline that um, was, was new to me. And so I, I loved working with Joseph Barber. Not only was he brilliant, but he was very fun and funny. So on, I don't know, day two, when he started um, at Disney, I'm doing the finger thing and I can never get through all of them to get all six concepts. And, and he listened and he said, well, you know, instead of calling it goals, and he has the proper Oxford accent, which of course I can't do, but he said, in, instead of saying goal setting, if you said setting goals, it spells spider. And it's like, wow, spider. So um, that's how the spider model came was that Joseph was listening to me try to find all six of my fingers um, and uh, came up with the spider model. But anyway, to answer your question, which uh, I, I will get to eventually, where is enrichment? You know, it, it's interesting. We're focusing now so much on animal welfare. I'm so excited about that. Welfare, well-being, wellness, whatever you want to call it. We're, we're focusing on that concept. And it's, it's really, you know, what's your, your, um, your five opportunities to thrive or your five domains? How do you make sure that these animals are operating on all their cylinders and, and having all these different opportunities to experience good welfare? Well, certainly enrichment is, you know, very much embedded in that. And so my question right now, and I don't know the answer to it, is has the concept of welfare and how we're focusing on welfare and providing opportunities for animals to thrive, is that totally subsumed, gobbled up the concept of enrichment? And I don't know the answer. What, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that either. And I think it's interesting when, you know, so when we have like the sciences of animal welfare, right? Because sometimes it's like, uh, you're in welfare, I'm in enrichment. And, uh, and, you know, we kind of put them in these different buckets. But as you say, you know, it's like, so connected. And so, um, of course, wanting to separate out the, the care versus the animals perspectives. But um yeah, I'm not sure either what the answer is, but I'm really glad to see that more and more organizations and people are moving towards this idea that, you know, enrichment is like that cherry on the cake that, that David says so well in that in that video, which is probably 10 years old or older from Oregon Zoo or um, where, you know, we are so good at integrating what it is that the animals need. And, and you talk about, you know, giving animals choices and control and those sorts of things. So what is it that animals need or prefer so they can do their own thing kind of semi-independently from us? Um, yeah, and uh, and not having to rely so much on it. So in a way, very good that it's all integrated in some sort of habitat management or whatever else we want to call it. But um, yeah, and I think it's also hard to answer because we are, we point back to, we haven't really solved and I don't think we ever will whether we want to do things for fun you know kind of the natural nature the na natural behavior debate that Dr. Heather Browning wrote about lately um, whether you know things can be fun and you know but they might be completely irrelevant and um, yeah so it all kinds of comes back to the circle but really um, for us to really keep in mind that all these various things that we do affect the animal's well-being either positively and on the scale to bad and that's the other thing I think we need to be a lot more clear you know when we say that affects welfare it's it's kind of sort of the assumption of knowing what in what way right um so yeah those are some of the things that to me with this with enrichment um like for example I already have this sort of rule that if you 
don't know if it's actually enriching the life of the animal, making it better. You're not allowed to call it enrichment. <laughs> so I like that. Okay. So just for us to kind of keep stepping back to, you talked about how important words are. And I think that's so true. Just like we say, the animals are not behaving, right? And that might be a language thing, but um, th there's often consequences to when we say that they are behaving, but maybe not the way we want to. But um, yeah, so I don't know what your thoughts about that are, but I think, you know, how do, we, uh, as long as it kind of, you know, not kind of, but it, we, you talked about definitions and really saying what it is that we mean when we talk about things, that this is one of the ones that comes to me when it comes to enrichment. Yeah, I think, you know, th there's actually a whole bunch of other uh, topics on, you know, the list that we wanted to talk. So I hope, you know, you and I can have another conversation where we can continue this. But perhaps in, in concluding this part on wellness, welfare, um, well-being, and also, you know, enrichment, perhaps the last thing that we could talk a little bit about is the, you know, the choice and control. You know, what, what do we mean or what does that mean for animals, right, in the practical sense? What are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, my thoughts really, um, I think, parrot uh, some of the stuff that Beth Posta talks about. Beth Posta is curator of behavioral husbandry at the Toledo Zoo and is just the immediate past president of the AZA Animal Welfare Committee. And um, like Marty McPhee, she's uh, wise beyond her years in terms of, of thinking about these things. Um, but she talks a lot about choice and control and the difference of it. And, and I, I tend to clump them. Oh, does the animal have choice and control? <laughs> and she said, no, no, we need to talk about choice and control. Because, you, you know, you think about <clears throat> choice and control. Okay, we, well, here, you know, we have this buffet of food items for the animal. The ob obviously, the animal has a choice. And so, you know, and I'm thinking in terms of my, my own food choices. So if I had a choice of broccoli and Brussels sprouts and, and uh, asparagus. I mean, I like all of those things. But then if you had a, a Snickers bar, well, I like a Snickers bar a whole lot more than I like Brussels sprouts, <laughs> um, asparagus, or whatever, well, uh, um, broccoli. And, and so if you gave me a choice of three green vegetables, great, I have choice of control but I'd really rather have a Snickers bar. And, and so is that true for animals? I mean, if you gave animals a choice and me a choice, I'd always go for the Snickers bar. Well, that's not good for me. The asparagus and the Brussels sprouts are, are good for me. And so how do you, you know, how do you filter through all of that? How, how do you give animals choice control when in fact, you know what, we're containing them by the very nature of being a zoo or aquarium, we're containing them. And so we've, we've limited some of their choices and control. And so if we're taking some stuff away, you know, I feel this huge obligation of, well, what can we give back? What, what kind of choices can we give them that are safe and healthy and every so often the equivalent of a Snickers bar? Because you always have to have a Snickers bar. Um, and so when we think about choice and control for our animals, I think as Beth would say, and I'm certainly not doing her concepts justice, um, really think about providing as many options as you can for the animal, um, because by the very nature of being in a zoo or aquarium, it's already limiting. Yes, no, absolutely. I agree with that. I think it's, it's really looking at, because they are such buzzwords, right? We use them all the time. Animals should have it. And then in, in what way are we doing that deep thinking or that innovation? And in what way do we make it part of that? Yeah. Do we make it practical? You know, what does it mean in a training session or in exhibit uh, layouts that an animal has a choice of saying, I have two sunny platforms. One is close to the public and one is far away from the public. I still have view, I still have sun. Uh, but, you know, because sometimes people will say like, well, if they don't like the sound or they don't want to, you know, the sun, they can go to the back of house. But 
that's not really also the sort of choices, right? It's like, okay, so I, if I want to move away from sound, for example, then, uh, then I would have to be without a view, right? So it's really deeply thinking about those sorts of things or can yeah, you... And, and yeah, go ahead. Point, going to the animal's natural history. So what, you know, what is the natural history of the animal? Tell me about what that animal needs and wants. And then it helps me identify what choices, what opportunities I can give that animal. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you're bringing up needs and wants. Uh, because that really, you know, points to, like you say, the biology, the ecology, the species, uh, but also very much the individual, you know, what do they prefer or what do they need together as a social group and, and can you, what can you control? Um, I always kind of poke, I've been training animals for a very long time and I sometimes poke at, okay, so if we say animals should have choice to control and I say, hey, can you come over? And the animals are like, no, not right now. I'm doing something else, right? <laughs> can I then just go and say, okay, great. Thanks for that answer. Here is, you know, your peach. And people would go, no, hold on a second. They're not coming, right? And I'm like, but if it's a choice and control thing, if I ask you something, you should be able to say no, right? What, what, why is that wrong? Uh, even though it kind of goes into uh, against some of our, you know, operant principles or whatever else. But yeah, so it is interesting to think more deeply about, so what do, would that look like? In what way would we show up, right? Yeah, because, you, you know, in a, in a training session, well, the animal has a choice to participate in the training session or not. Right. You have a bucket of my favorite treats. <laughs> you have a bucket of Snickers bars. I could choose not to participate but I'm hungry and I like Snickers bars or, you know, peaches or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so there is choice and control, but you have more control because you're holding the bucket and it's important to respect that. Yeah, absolutely. So just, you know, and, and I think, you know, talking about these things and thinking about them just makes us become aware of that. Like you say that, you know, the responsibility that comes with our control over access to their food, or their favorite foods, right? Because we might say, well, for, for the difficult behaviors or the ones that they're not so good, we'll keep the Snickers bar only for those. And so, you know, it's always contingent upon you having to behave in a certain way to have that access. And is that, yeah, so it is interesting to, we obviously don't want to come to a screeching halt, uh, but it is interesting for us to, um, like you said, you know, we are containing the animals and in what way can we show up to really do the best that we can? And uh, in what way does that show in our choice and control? Yeah, no, I love it. So we have been talking for over an hour. I hope we connect again soon to continue this wonderful, all these wonderful topics. Do you have like a concluding story you want to share with us uh, of an animal or something, a research, a nerdy thing, uh, anything you like? A story. Um... Um, I'm just going to talk about somebody that influenced me. How's that? Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so Deborah Kleiman uh, was a researcher at the National Zoo. She passed away probably about five or six years ago. Um, and um, she just, she influenced so, so many people. And I, and I just think in terms of uh, a woman in science. And so, you know, I'm a, a woman of a certain age in science. And Deborah was, was older than me. So as an older woman in science who... Um, just blaze some amazing trails. And so uh, I just want to acknowledge uh, the concept of mentorship. And so Deborah was a mentor to me um, and so, so influenced me. Um, and I just always encourage people to pay it forward. So um, if you're young and in this business, find somebody that um, you feel would be a good mentor to you and then pay it back, pay it forward, however you say that, um, and uh, work to be a mentor to somebody else. Because this is a wonderful field and, and we need good people in there and um, just having support um, and guidance is really important. Wonderful, that's a wonderful story to conclude on and celebrating her work and we'll make sure with this conversation there will be links to you know Second Nature and how's work and books and uh, wild mammals in captivity and the book and so on so that people can learn more about 
you know, the written work, but also the people behind the trails and the paths and, you know, the, the ways paved forward. So thanks so much, Jill, for coming on to this conversation. My pleasure. I Thank you. It was really fun talking with you. Yeah, I can't wait for the next one. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a PAUSE member today.